Welcome to The Craft, our long Halloween special. Tonight we've got two stories for you, a little bit of magic named Eternia, and some sci-fi from Mama Blue. Tommy was mine, always and forever mine. Our mothers were childhood friends from families intertwined as far back as anyone could recall. Not that many were left to remember. My mother was the last of the Raven family, Tommy's mother the last of the goods. Tommy and I played together every day as children, crawling on threadbare carpet, barefooting through grass, exploring the ramshackle Victorian that was all that was left of my mother's line, and where we all lived together after our fathers left. The people at school called Tommy special and tested him whenever they could. They wanted to put him in the county's special school, but his mother wouldn't hear it, just shrugged and said, Some do, some don't, Tommy don't. And that was that. Tommy rode my bus to school, but disappeared into the dummy classes, and I wouldn't see him until lunch or the end of school. Whenever I asked him what he did all day, he wouldn't talk about it. He'd just say, I get by. Mama wouldn't let the school people put me in a special school. She made them keep me in the same school with Cassie, not the same classes. I didn't mind because I knew I'd see her at lunch. And we didn't go to school every day. We'd skip and explore the forest around Cassie's house. She always called it the prime evil woods. That makes them sound bad, but they weren't. The woods were great. Once we saw an eagle grab a fish from Cassie's pond. That was better than anything at school. And we made our own games. I'd save Cassie from a pretend dragon or I'd get special leaves from high up in trees for Cassie. Our games were great. Once, when we were eight and I was it during hide-and-seek, I smelled rain on the wind and felt a shiver of electricity from far distant lightning. I let Tommy find me and said, It's your turn. Go hide and don't you dare show yourself until I find you. He raced off into the deepest part of the woods, which grew darker by the minute. I walked home and ate dinner, listening to the howling of the wind, the crashing of thunder, and pelting of rain against the house. Neither of our mothers noticed he was gone at first. When they finally asked where he was, I said, He's staying at Jacob's house. They knew Jacob Wilson well and didn't ask again. I laid in bed that night, picturing him in the forest, huddled against a tree or under a pile of leaves, hands over his eyes, because he thought that made him harder to find. I kept thinking that he'd come in the door in a few minutes, telling myself that he'd appear when I'd counted backwards from 100 and ended with five, four, three, two, one. Come in, Tommy. But it didn't work. Eventually, I drifted off to sleep. I didn't mind when Cassie forgot me when we were playing. Even if it was overnight or something, she was there when I got back home. Mama was mad because I got water on the floor. You're getting water everywhere. You know better than that. Think, she said. She made me undress and run naked to the shower. After that, I didn't try to hide so good. I didn't want Cassie to have 
so much trouble finding me. Cassie loved exploring. She liked to find things in new places in the forest. In bad weather, we'd explore the house. Like Cassie would always say, we were the first people to find the kitchen or the laundry room. Cassie would find my underwear and say it was a lion cloth of a dirty jungle man. Then she'd scream and throw it at me like it was alive. It made me laugh. The only place I didn't want to explore was the basement. I never liked it. It was dirty with spiders and bugs. I sat in the sun on the top step asking her to come back up. She just walked around telling me what she could see. Like many old houses, mine had a root cellar, a dank, dark hole that you could only get to from slanted doors on the side of the house. My mother called it a storm cellar, but we never used it for that. Our mothers didn't keep us from it, but our fears did. Grimy stone walls, a gravel floor, and bug-infested wooden beams made an effective barrier from our early childhood. When I asked my mother what was down there, Junk, she said. It's all junk down there. A cloud of cigarette smoke drifted out of her mouth, and she sucked it into her nose before blowing it back out at me. I don't have time to deal with it. Find something better to do with your time. Go outside with Tommy. It wasn't until we were twelve that I convinced Tommy that we needed to explore it on our own. Tommy took absolutely forever to put on a ridiculous outfit to block the bugs. God, what a baby. Cassie made me agree to explore the basement with her. You're in junior high now, she said. Stop being a baby. So I put on a long sleeve shirt and long pants. I put Mama's garden net in front of her gardening hat and stuck that into my shirt so no bugs or spiders could get onto my face. I don't know why so many bugs were down there. Cassie called my clothes the baby explorer outfit. I didn't like that. I didn't like the stairs either. They were just creaky old boards and I felt like somebody could grab my legs and pull me down under the stairs. That would hurt. In the basement, a flickering bulb swung from a wire in the middle of the low ceiling, less giving light than bringing to life fantastic shadows on the stone walls, barely illuminating a massive array of junk. I could just imagine our mothers tossing it all down there, thinking that they would organize it someday, but never doing it. Stacks of magazines and newspapers from 20 years before I was born spilled over long, out-of-style clothing that stunk of mildew, covered chairs that might have been repaired by a craftsman but never by our mothers, blanketed folders of business papers over which silverfish scurried. I don't want to be here, Tommy would whine from behind his baby net. Don't be such a baby, Tommy, I'd tell him. There's treasure down here. Can't you feel it? It's like the Goonies, only without the ship. I hope that mean old lady isn't down here. I'd been to the basement many times before, but with Tommy not whining at me from the top step, I could stay longer, explore further. My Dollar General flashlight just barely lit up an old dresser in the corner, one I had somehow overlooked before. I swear it had a slight glow to it, 
because I could still see its outline when I moved the flashlight beam somewhere else. I want to see what's in that dresser, Tommy. Just relax and let me explore, I told him. I had to push past a broken crib and two bicycles with one wheel apiece to get to that chest. I pulled open each of the drawers, expecting gold or jewels or an ancient treasure map. The first two drawers had some moth-eaten sweaters and a bunch of unmatched socks. But the third one had an old leather satchel, sealed by a hefty buckle, just the kind of thing I could see an old pirate carrying around, looking to hide in my house because he was being chased by John Law. Tommy! I found something, I called to him. There's a big spider watching me, said Tommy. I pulled the satchel out. It's really heavy, just like a bunch of gold would be. Maybe we'll find a skull with a diamond for an eye. Wait, it's too flat and heavy to be a skull. I don't want a skull with a diamond for an eye. I want to leave. Tommy whined. The buckle was frozen, maybe rusty inside, and I had to hit it against the chest to finally open it. And what did I get? Diamonds? Gold? Jewels as big as my fist? Books, Tommy! It's full of books! Stinky old books! We need to leave. The spider is getting ready to jump on me. I think it's a man-eater. Jesus, Tommy, you are such a baby. <sighs> Let's go. I almost left the satchel of books in the basement to rot with all the other worthless junk. But something made me pick them up. It was a decision I would come to regret. Exploring the basement wasn't always fun. Cassie made me wait for her while all kinds of bugs would gather around me just looking for a way to get past my net, trying to crawl underneath it or get into my boots so they could bite me. I hate bugs. They're gross and hairy, and a lot of them have too many eyes. As soon as she was done, I'd run up the stairs so happy to be out of that basement where everything bad lived. I'm sure we made it out of there just in time to avoid getting attacked by bugs and all for books. Just dumb old books that you could find anywhere. Worthless junk. That's what I thought of the books at first. They didn't even seem to have titles until I looked at them really closely. The smallest of the books, an ivory leather-bound book, had symbols faintly embossed along the spine, but when I concentrated on them... They made some sense as Primus Principis. And when I stared longer, it seemed to be First Principles. If I looked away and glanced back, they became seemingly nonsense words again. It was the same when I opened the book and started to read gibberish at first, and then English words and sentences, like I had to cut through the cobwebs in my head to get to the meaning. As I read... It was like I could hear the author's voice in my head, like an old man giving me lessons. The book in your hands will show you that the world around you is an illusion. It is not bound by the everyday constraints to which you've become accustomed. 
It is instead filled with ineffable energies and boundless capacities for the new and wondrous. For hundreds of years, practitioners of the ancient arts have sought to embedder the world through the manipulation of the essential energies of earth, fire, air, and water. Students new to the ancient arts must exercise caution in being too forward about their studies to those without. It is all too common that those without do not understand or appreciate the ancient arts and are taken aback by it, and become most suspicious and unreasonable. One need only look to the bloody and unjust history of practitioners of the ancient arts to know that discretion is the better part of survival. Those without can be counted upon to react negatively. Those within the practice of the ancient arts cannot be trusted to keep quiet about the ancient arts. In your daily movements, you may meet such practitioners, but even they must be regarded with some caution, as it becomes far too easy when one member is exposed to sacrifice another. Practitioners chewed within the jaws of torture will yield information as quickly as any other. Practice your arts alone. The coven is comforting, but always endangering. Warlock gatherings especially create problems, such as when that of Jared the Injudicious. And he went on to describe something awful. It took me a while to get through the introduction, but once he started writing about actual, real-life spells, I was hooked. Cassie never liked reading all that much before she found the books in the basement. After that, they were all she'd read. She carried one, a white one, around with her for years, always looking at it, frowning, biting her lower lip. I knew she was really thinking when she did that. She only did that when she was watching Mr. Shows on TV. She said it was her thinking face, and she did it all the time with the basement books. She'd rather stare at them than do almost anything, even exploring. It got so... I'd have to make deals with her to get her to do something else. I'd take her turn at the dishes so we could spend the day in the woods or go bike riding together. Or I'd take laundry day just so she'd play pirates. The books were work, constant concentration and struggle. But when I figured something out in the book, it was like eating warm chocolate. Everything felt good. It wasn't just an intellectual high when I'd complete a spell. It was physical. A cascade of warmth that spread from my head and my hands into my body, bringing it to life. I'd feel a big spell like a wave, a pressure pushing excitement up my arms and into my chest. The harder the spell, the deeper the feelings would go. Electric thrills through my body, coursing through me. Pleasure tingling every nerve. Sensations would well up from my feet to meet the wave from my body. And there was only one place they could pull. Only one area that could receive that kind of power. I'd writhe at my desk, grinding through spell after spell. Ending evenings spent, drained. Wasted, but oh, so satisfied. I copied spells into spiral-bound notebooks, marveling at how they'd transform into indecipherable symbols on new store-bought paper, just like on the parchment of the books. These notebooks became my life, my solace in school, 
sitting only with Tommy at lunch, scraping by in my classes, oblivious to anything else but magic. Mama says everyone changes as they get older, but Cassie changed more than anyone. Once she found the books, she stopped exploring and she barely left her room. Her mama would force her to go to school, but she didn't try anymore. Mama said that with her grades, she'd never get a job. And she changed in other ways. She was even less friendly in school. To the other kids, I mean. She'd sit alone at lunch and or only let me join her. She didn't want to do anything with the other kids. She just frowned at him if they even tried to talk to her. It wasn't easy being her friend. The books built on each other with ever more advanced spells, starting with simple things like doing card tricks to making objects move to creating spontaneous fire. Each one thrilled me, made me see what wonders lay just beyond my mind. I found practical uses for each of them. I used the transubstantiato spell to turn Mr. Delano's dog, who kept crapping on our lawn, into a shrieking, gibbering hellhound with a snarling monkey face and bat wings. Fracturio was useful for making Mrs. Swanson, who gave me an F in chemistry, fall down the stairs at school, shattering her leg so badly it stuck out of her skin. I was especially pleased to use the Fecalio Tempestus spell to great effect on the cheerleaders. It's all about timing when to cast a spell like this. For cheerleaders, losing bowel control means two words. Human pyramid. I nearly passed out laughing in the bleachers as I watched them, a shivering delight of carnal energy pulsing through me as the slick pyramid collapsed in on itself. I worried about Cassie. People around her were unlucky, and I didn't want it to rub off on her. She saw a lot of bad things that I wish she hadn't. She saw the chemistry teacher get hurt in that terrible cheerleading accident. Our poor neighbor... Mr. Delano got attacked by his own dog. Things like that weren't fair to Cassie. I, th I think that's why she didn't want to talk to the other kids. And they could be mean, like, like this one lunch, Andy Carver, a big dumb guy, decided that he'd take away her notebook. Cassie told him to give it back, but he wouldn't. He just stood there laughing at her and saying, Hey, everybody, look at Creepy Cassie. Everybody in the lunchroom started watching. Here's your stupid notebook, he said, and it doesn't even have words. It's just a big fake. Creepy Cassie is a fake. You can't read this. It's not even words. And he held her notebook over her head, laughing while she grabbed for it. Oh, Cassie looked so mad at first. But then... She sort of backed up, took a breath, and started talking really quiet and moving her hands. Look at the freak. She ain't talking, said Andy. She's just grunting. Is she pooping? Is she... And then he just stopped with her notebook above his head. Cassie kept talking all the time. I couldn't hear what she was saying, though. Andy stood there doing nothing, looking confused 
After a while, the lunchroom got bored and just stopped watching. But Cassie kept talking. Then Andy got bored, I guess, and gave her book back. He's turned around and went back to his table like he'd forgotten her. The first big defense spell I cast in public was against a lump called Andy Carver, a real turd of a human. He thought he was such a big man, bullying a girl at lunch. He'd done this to me before, but I had learned the Imperio spell, just in case he tried it again. I'd practiced on someone else plenty of times. So, when he yanked away my book, all I had to do was relax into the art and let practice take over. It was easy. I took control of his will and let him stand there until everyone got bored. Then I made him give back my book. I thought about making him do something like strip naked or lick the floor, but I didn't want to attract attention. Thing was, I knew that I could only safely control him for so long, but I didn't really care. I knew that lasting damage could happen to those under the spell for too long but I knew I was helping the world when I held his will in my power, felt it struggle, push against my power, a butterfly trapped under a blanket. I felt him grow so weak, so sad, him screaming, pleading with me silently, right there in the lunchroom. Mr. Big Shot football player, Mr. Six Foot Four, Mr. Gets Whatever He Wants Crushed by a Little Girl. I pushed him back to his table to sit with his jock friends and gave one last squeeze. I felt his will crumble and collapse, the butterfly dusted to powder, a withered husk in a teenager's body. It felt so, so good. I sat at the lunch table, squeezing my thighs together, trembling and savoring it. Funny thing. Andy must have felt real bad about being mean to Cassie because he never bothered her again. He stopped being good at football, too, and pretty much everything else. It's funny how some people are good at something for a while, but then can't do it anymore. Who would have thought a big guy like that would get kicked off the football team and just work as a bag boy? Cassie was nice about it, though. She always wanted him to bag our groceries and carry them to the car, even if it was raining or something. And she smiled at him when he did. The last book was filled with ultimatio spells, the hardest ones, and the ones that made me the most delighted. They were the chaotic ones, the dangerous ones, the ones I didn't always understand because they took so much concentration just to read, let alone perform. The words didn't seem to want to form. They resisted me and would switch around like they shouldn't give up their dark secrets. But I made them. I pushed them, brought them under my control. I was their master and gave them no quarter as I hunted them across the page. Eventually, I found the Eterna spell, one of the final ones in the books, one of the darkest, with words that were the hardest to control. The Eterna spell promised life after death, a never-ending string of days until the end of time, but it required extensive preparation, along with a sacrifice. The author kept going on about what he called 
reditus, which seemed to be about income from the spell. Income seemed pointless for a spell that granted eternal life. <sighs> to live forever became my obsession. After high school, Mama got me a job at the animal shelter. I'd feed the cats and the dogs and clean up after them. I liked helping them. Cats and dogs are nice. I talked to them and petted them. and I didn't mind the smell, and I could help Cassie because she adopted several pets. She didn't keep them at home, though. She said a friend had taken them home for her. It was nice of her friend to adopt so many animals. I wish I could meet her friend. I went through a lot of damn animals trying to find what the Eterna wanted. I knew it was a living sacrifice, but the ritual was unclear. Was it with a knife? A clear slice along the throat to bring out the ruby rewards? Was it strangulation? The slow crushing away of life? Was it burning? The stench of flesh turning into flames? The words of the incantation were unclear, cloaked in willful obfuscation. I practiced the enchanted words constantly, hacking, stabbing, squeezing, and crushing animals until I had a pile in the woods I had to cover with brush and burn one night. A bonfire of failures. I stood in front of those flames cursing each futile effort, furious with those useless animals, until suddenly, in the light of their blazing corpses, I understood. It wasn't the method, but the sacrifice object itself that was wrong. Animals weren't strong enough magic. I needed something else. My boss at the animal shelter got mad at me because of all the animals that Cassie had adopted. Where is she keeping all of them, Tommy? Mr. Wallace said. Just because you know her don't mean she can have whatever she wants. You know we check up on our adoptees, right? Maybe I need to make a home visit, huh? What would Cassie say to that? Well, I told Mr. Wallace I didn't know that I'd have to talk to her. You do that, Tommy. Let her know that I want to know what's going on with her adoptees. The better I got at spells, the more I realized what idiots people are. Take old man Wallace at the animal shelter. What did he think he was going to accomplish, yelling at Tommy about my animals? I paid for them. I could do whatever I wanted with them. How dare he question me? It isn't something he'll do again. But what a fortunate coincidence. He wasn't nice about Cassie. But I really missed Mr. Wallace after he left the animal shelter. Everybody was surprised that he just left town all of a sudden. I guess that happens sometimes. I never even got to tell him that Cassie said all her animals were fine. Damn it! I was wrong. Even that fat slob Wallace couldn't make the spell work, and he was a blood balloon! When I held him in the air and slowly slit him open, he sprayed a shower of blood so full I could stand in it and repeat the incantations. But nothing! I felt the vaguest tinglings of power as he drained, but nothing really useful. Nothing close to the rapture the Eterna spell should bring. But it wasn't all in vain. After I disposed of him and was washing up, I had another realization. 
The animals weren't a sacrifice, not to me. Neither was Wallace. They were just the means to an end. I had to change the meaning of the sacrifice. <sighs> Clarity took my breath away right there in the shower. True power requires sacrifice, giving up something of value. I knew what I had to do. Cassie didn't visit me often at the shelter, but she was really nice when she did. She brought me candy and a new flashlight and other stuff from the Walmart that I'd wanted. She said we were going to go on a secret adventure that night, just us, like when we were kids. I was so happy. It's all about cost, I realized. The price you pay. When Tommy was in the woods, I knew I'd done the right thing. I could feel the energy stirring, twitching its way into my hands. I started the incantations with the relaxio spell to hold Tommy fast. I didn't want him to suffer. Then the sacred words of the Eterna spell burst forth from my mouth. This time, it was so different. Everything felt right. I didn't need knives. I didn't need hammers. My body acted of its own accord and drew me close to Tommy. My hand stroked his cheek and my lips kissed his forehead. Do you want to help me, Tommy? I whispered. Yes, Cassie, he replied. My hand slid down to his neck and tightened as I began to chant. My eyes refused to close as I squeezed his throat, my hands growing strong with a new power that flowed through me in shuddering, thrilling waves. Crescendo after crescendo of arousal beat within me as I felt Tommy give his life to me, as he yielded to me everything I wanted, everything I demanded. He knew. At the end, my plan, he struggled, choked, weakly pushed against me, but it was far too late. I devoured him, pulled away everything that was him, sucked the marrow of his bones through my hands, and luxuriated in the last drop of his essence, leaving his body and becoming mine. And when it was over, I dropped his body and sagged to the ground, sated with power, and energy, thrilled with the assurance of a spell successfully done. Eterna was mine. I dug a final home for Tommy. I dug it deep and clean with a silver spade, the final requirement of the spell. I wrapped him in a soft, warm blanket and gently floated his body into the hole. I stood on top of it when it was filled and thanked him for his life his love, his gift. And then I left him and began my journeys away from my home and all those useless attachments. Nothing ends seamlessly. Nothing is neat in this world. I should have known by the skittish letters in the book that black magic is never fair. The author of my precious books, that old man forever reading in my head, had warned of Redditus. In my haste and foolishness, I thought it was income, the reward of eternal life I would reap from the Eterna spell. No, I should have taken more care. That's what the letters were telling me. 
Understand this. I have eternal life, but nothing is without cost, and I pay it every night. No matter where I am, no matter where I go or what I do, no matter if I've sealed myself in a secure building, a deep cave, or a crypt, Tommy returns. That's what Redditus means. The return. I smell him before I see him. A thick wave of rotting meat. His footsteps slap wetly as he drags himself towards me. He's covered in bugs and spiders, worms pushing themselves out of his eyes and flesh, mucus-coated pearls dropping onto me. I'm pulled into his putrescent embrace, unable to resist the spell that I myself cast. Tommy puts his ragged hands behind my head, patches of skin dragging through my hair, and seals his decaying lips on mine, cutting off my breath. I scream into his mouth and hear my muffled echo wet in my ear. I struggle against him, pushing him away with all of my strength to no avail. Every night, I choke like Tommy choked. I fight for breath and inhale only the dirt in his mouth, the stagnant air of the grave, the squirming insects wriggling through his porous, slick flesh. And yes, the familiar excitement of magic flows through me, setting my body on fire even as it dies. I struggle, I shriek, and I fill with his stench, his thick, black, Decomposition fluids, the last taste on my tongue as I die. And the next morning, I am reborn, resurrected, returned. Ever hear of the tarantula hawk? Most people haven't. It's a wasp, a big one, about two inches long and it lives damn near everywhere. But especially in hot climates near obviously, tarantulas, as its name implies. It hunts tarantulas and uses them for birthing rituals so nasty, uh, it almost makes you feel sorry for the spiders. Almost. My name's Nora. I'm an entomologist. I work at a hush-hush government lab where the joke is that I've already killed you if I'm telling you about this place. You just don't know it yet. So let's just call it the lab. I didn't start out wanting to work at a place like the lab, but jobs for entomologists aren't as abundant as you might imagine. I could have gone to one of the big players like Orkin, Terminex, but I went to a grad student job fair and talked to some serious looking guys from the State Department, all about helping my country and whatnot. The salary wasn't bad and I didn't have anything keeping me around my college, being estranged from my family and not having any close friends, so I went to work for them. I found out later that they particularly liked to hire unattached people. If you're single, they have less of a trail to clean up if things go... wrong. But everything went right. At least, at first. I fit in pretty well with everyone at the lab. It wasn't like there was a lot of conversation or camaraderie there. The people in the lab kept to themselves, heads down, focused on science. But the science... Oh, God, the science. It was something else. I thought I'd been at a pretty advanced lab in grad school, and when I studied under a big-deal scientist, Dr. Susan Starling, who had multi-million dollar grants out the wazoo and was constantly publishing and talking with bug people 
all over the world. But Starling's lab was nothing like the lab. The stuff I had access to at the lab was crazy advanced, with genetic sequencers, hyperfast computers, biologics like I'd never seen before. I got more done in a few days with this equipment than I'd done in a year at my old lab. It made me want to call up good old Starling and tell her how much better real science was outside her crusty old lab. Of course, that was a definite no-no. Everything was kept quiet. No publications, no outside discussions, no bragging to your neighbors about the cool stuff we did every day. Go to the lab. Be brilliant. Go home. Wash, rinse, repeat. A couple of years into this cycle, the head of ENTSEC, that is, entomology section, left the lab, and I started working for Tommy Costa. Even in a lab full of spiders, wasps, and giant hissing cockroaches, Tommy was the least appealing life form. Morbidly obese, rude, impatient, and possessing of questionable personal hygiene habits, Tommy's daily intrusions into my lab were worse than a bullet ant sting. We need to talk about your progress. You should be advancing with them much more rapidly. You haven't hit your development marks in six months. What's the problem? Well, you know, Tommy, sometimes the bugs do what you want, sometimes not. Eh. Wrong answer, Nora. Not when the potential for your projects is so great. The committee really wants to push forward the Pepsis project. It's high value. Get it done or find another lab. I hated when she pressed the Pepsis project. It was my least favorite project. Pepsis grossa, a tarantula hawk. The aim of the project was to breed more aggressive wasps. Sounds insane, right? It gets worse. The tarantula wasp has a sting so horrible, it's ranked as the second most painful in the insect kingdom, losing only to the truly horrifying bullet ant, named so because its bite feels like being shot. There's an entomologist named Justin Schmidt who lets himself get stung by insects and rates them on what he calls the Schmidt Sting Pain Index. I guess if you're willing to put up with all that pain, you can be narcissistic about the naming of the scale. Anyway, Schmidt ranks the Pepsis a four on a four-point scale. But the Pepsis Sting has one big difference. Although most insect bites have long-lasting, potentially lethal effects, The Pepsi sting only lasts three minutes. It's three minutes of pure, undiluted, hellish agony. But when the mind-wrecking pain subsides, the sting area just shows a little redness. You might think this is good news, but remember, I work for the government. Every silver lining has a deeper, secret government cloud of horrible. I had been working on the Pepsis project for a few months, making decent progress when I overheard Stanky Tommy and her boss talking about the Pepsis project. From what I could gather, they wanted a super wasp for enhanced interrogation techniques. Just imagine, Tommy, we could promise the ability to deliver endless pain with almost no visible after effects. Why beat up a suspected terrorist when you could just plop a wasp down on him and send him to hell again and again and again? When you're done, dump him off a gibbering wreck with stories no one would believe. Trust me, this thing is a gold mine. Get it done. Absolutely. I'll push it to the top of the monthlies. The problem is that the Pepsis aren't naturally aggressive, only stinging when threatened or agitated. I guess it's too much trouble for interrogators to agitate them, or maybe it's too dangerous. 
Justin, I've got my own pain index, Schmidt, says that if a Pepsi stings you, just lie down and scream for three minutes until it's over. This from a guy who's voluntarily been stung, bitten, and abused by every damn insect in the world. Lie down and scream. So that's what they wanted me to do, engineer a meaner wasp. And that's why this project was my least favorite. Look, I'm not a great person, and I can't say I give much of a damn about my fellow man, but even I don't want to make the world that much worse of a place. So I dodged. I worked on other projects and intentionally blind alleys. But every day, Tommy thundered in to ask about my progress. What have you gotten done on Pepsis? It's coming along, slowly, but I, I want to show you some of the great things I've been able to do to control the growth of Emerald Ash Borer. I'm telling you, these new genetic sequences are making it so much easier to isolate the right genes. It's so great to do see what- Do I look like I give a about the Ash Borer? What end-of-quarter deliverables are we looking at for the Pepsis? It's hard to say. Aggression isn't an easy trait to control. And what happens if they get loose? Do we really want aggressive, insanely painful wasps just flying around? Above your pay grade, Nora. Get the damn things aggressive. Now, Nora, go talk to Sanderson in 306. He has been making terrific progress with the squash moth. You should see that. He's taken it from being a winged nothing into about the nastiest little critter I have ever seen. We need that in the Pepsis. If you can't do it, I'll find someone who can. So what was I supposed to do? I marched right down to Sanderson, that hack, and studied what he was doing with that stupid moth. It was nothing that I couldn't have thought of. I figured it wouldn't be too hard to do with the Pepsis, so it came down to whether I wanted to remain employed at a cushy job with everything I could ever hope for, or whether I wanted to be unemployed, just so some terrorist schmuck would have a gentler interrogation. I spent a drunken weekend weighing the pros and cons and decided Tommy would just find someone else. The world was already headed into the crapper, and so I might as well be the one paid for putting it there. So I copied Sanderson's technique and threw in some other ideas I'd had, like increasing the growth rate and size of the Pepsis by pulling genetics from a variety of sources. Some insects, some not. Let's call it a grab bag approach to genetics. Throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. I got what I wanted, or in hindsight, what I deserved. Within six months, I had doubled the average size of the wasp and concentrated the venom by 50%. Three months after that, I doubled it again and tripled the effect duration of the venom. The Pepsis Nora, hey, if Schmidt can do it, so can I, was an eight-inch long wasp that could deliver a dose of venom so powerful it put a person into 15 minutes of the most intense pain imaginable. At least that's what I was guessing from the reaction at the dilute trials. We hadn't tried full-strength human trials because what kind of idiot could you pay to do that? I knew I was getting close when I had a 10 to 1 dilution that still had our test subject, humanity students who thought they'd signed up to evaluate a cure for the common cold, screaming their heads off. Throughout the Pepsis project, Tommy was constantly in my lab, going through my books, computer files, growing projections, everything. She chewed the data and crapped questions. For a while, I thought she had a crush on me, which was disgusting. Looking back now, it's pretty obvious that she had something else in mind. 
The increase in aggression was amazing. One of the few saving graces of Pepsis in the wild is that the females, the only ones with stingers, were pretty docile. <laughs> Not anymore. They were rage monsters, stinging anything in sight, even each other if I agitated them. One female emerged that towered over the rest. She was nine inches long and a brilliant metallic blue, unlike any of the others. I started calling her Mama Blue because she led the swarm. I mean led in the same way the biggest psychopath is the leader in a biker gang. I hadn't learned much about the social hierarchy of wasps, but Mama Blue was at the top. She killed at least five other wasps before I separated her from the rest. Mama Blue was not to be trifled with. Mama Blue was aggressive. But would her aggression transfer to other species, or was she just the worst relative since Lizzie Borden? Nothing to do but put her in a cage match and see if she survives. Into the jaws of danger. In this case, the fangs of a big ass spider. I requisitioned two goliath bird spiders from the arachnitarium, which just confirmed for me I had a great job. Where else could I trade in paperwork for two massive hairy tarantulas? These bad boys would definitely give Mama Blue a run for her money. But I figured if Mama Blue couldn't take on these two, she wasn't going to be very useful to me. In the insectarium, I connected the plastic cage I kept the pepsis into a modified habitrail tube that led to the tarantula cage. Then. I passed through the containment door, back to the control room, flipped the switch that opened the wasp cage in the insectarium into the tarantula cage, and started a timer. In the wild, a pepsis will cautiously approach a tarantula, almost dancing with it, being careful of the fangs. Tarantulas know that the wasps are dangerous, so they rise up on their hind legs and bare their fangs, in a show of aggression before the struggle. The fight goes on for a while as the wasps try to sneak in a way to sting the spider, usually in a vulnerable spot like the knee, not Mama Blue. It was like she was just waiting for the door to open. She darted through the cage door, down the tube, into the tarantula cage, straight towards the Goliaths. Neither of the Goliaths offered a show of aggression. I swear, they exchanged an oh look, and then they ran for the hills. They scrambled over the rocks, the water bottles, and the tank, and they crammed themselves underneath anything they could find to get away from her. Not that it did them any good. Mama Blue landed on top of one, raised her abdomen high, and slammed her stinger indiscriminately into it. This was new. I had expected Mama Blue to pick a spot carefully, but her stinger was so big and hard that she drove it right through the tarantula's exoskeleton, past any of its defenses, and into its body. In nature, Pepsis only does this once. Mama Blue slammed him again and again and again, impaling the Goliath repeatedly, while the normally fierce giant jerked hideously with each thrust. Then she flew off the first one and turned on the second Goliath, which had been crawling upward at the glass walls of the arachnitarium. Trying with all of its might to climb the wall and away from her, Mama Blue landed on the back of the second Goliath and again slammed her stinger through the exoskeleton directly into the body of the spider. And she did it again and again and again, even though I'm sure she paralyzed it with the first sting. She tossed them both into a pile and started laying eggs on them. Afterwards, she squatted on them, the queen admiring her treasure room. Then she turned around and flew back to the insectarium. 31 seconds. She'd taken just 31 seconds to pummel two goliath spiders and lay eggs. I was stunned. But I had the sense that even if 15 tarantulas had been swarming in the cage, it wouldn't have taken her much longer than that. I wrote up the day's events, 
noting the incredible performance of Mama Blue and decided to call it quits for the day. Have a great night, Mama Blue, I called to her on my way out of the lab. I thought her head swiveled to watch me leave, but I'm sure it was a trick of the light. When I came back into the lab the next morning, I took one look around the arachnitarium and started swearing. So who the f*** has been f***ing with my lab? The arachnitarium swarmed with small pepsis. There had to be nearly a dozen of them in there, each of them the same metallic blue as Mama Blue, each of them fully flying. The buzzing was audible even outside the arachnitarium. I rewound the video, intent on catching whoever had released the swarm into my spider cage and ruined my experiment. How wrong I was. At one hour past Mama Blue's laying of the eggs, the eggs writhed in the tank, bulging uncontrollably. At 2.15, the egg sac split far ahead of the norm, and the larva immediately started to feed voraciously. The larva, which usually ate the non-vital organs of the spider so it would provide fresh meat longer, skipped the preliminaries and ate everything, vital or not. With so many larvae, it didn't take long before the spiders were husks. Then clean, bare pieces of shattered exoskeleton. Then the larvae began their transformation. Within 15 hours, right before I came into the lab, the arachnitarium was filled with 10 adults, pepsis, flying, waiting, hungry. I was stunned. Mama Blue's fertility was off the scale and the growth rate of her progeny was unbelievable. Normally, a pepsis will lay just one egg, but Mama Blue had planted 10 onto the spiders. Although the wasps were smaller than Mama Blue now, I felt sure that with enough food, they'd be at least as big as Mama Blue. I walked into Tommy's office that Friday, confident that she'd finally see that my work was excellent. I couldn't wait to see the look on her face when I told her about the progress that I had made with the Pepsis, and I imagined a huge bonus coming my way. No such luck. Nora! You're off the Pepsis project. We've got some other lower value targets that I think you can hit. What? I have a report right here that will show you that the project is a success. The venom from the newest strain is knocking testers on their even at a 10 to 1. This is exactly what you wanted out of this project, Tommy. I will be the one to decide what I wanted out of this project, Nora. I don't understand this. Nine months ago, you told me to increase the potency of the venom and the aggression of the strain. I did that. It's absolutely a knockout. This stuff is killing it in the screens. What's the problem? The problem is that we've got eight-inch-long insects that are going to be incredibly difficult to move around. Where are we going to keep these monstrosities? I didn't tell you to build King Kong. I said more aggressive. Bigger wasps deliver more venom and have longer-lasting effects. That's what you need! Something insanely painful and doesn't leave evidence, am I right? You know those moments when you realized you just said something you shouldn't have? I'm a master of those moments. As soon as I said it, I knew that I screwed up. Tommy's look was like the ones I gave Sanderson. I knew what it was like to have something want to crush you. Go to your lab. Pack up everything not related to Pepsis and go to Sanderson's lab. He'll give you a desk. Now, Nora! Look, I really didn't mean to- Now! Nora! I went back to the lab and packed up the few things I had not related to Pepsis. Then I walked it down to Sanderson's lab, where he was mooning over two moths fighting in a terrarium. Hey, Nora, check out my latest moths. Pretty hardcore, huh? 
A hardcore moth is still just a moth, Sanderson. Oh, says you. I spent the rest of the day trying to look busy and ignore Sanderson cooing over his moths. I went home and tried to figure out what I'd done wrong. I turned it over and over in my head, looking for a reason why I should get shifted to a stupid moth project. Mothman Sanderson's lab was the last place I wanted to be. I had a couple of drinks to calm my nerves, and around midnight, I knew what I had to do. I wasn't going to let Tommy take away everything I had done. If I was going to have to start from scratch in Mothman's lab, she was going to have to start from scratch. I'd sneak back into my lab, kill all the Pepsis, and figure out a way to cover it. So I went back to my lab. Imagine my surprise when I saw Tommy in the insectarium connecting up the habit trail and another spider cage. This one was six tarantulas. All around the lab were my notebooks and my lab computer was open to my online lab book with my name replaced with hers. My initials replaced with T.C. Even half drunk, it fell into place. She wasn't moving me to Sanderson's lab because I screwed up. She was moving me because I had done a great job and she wanted to take the credit for it. How could I have been so stupid? That's why she spent so much time in my lab. That's why she kept coming back all the time to check on the progress. It gave her believability when she said that she had created the project. She'd done the work. The funny thing is that it hardly mattered who'd done the work. She'd get the credit anyway. It was just petty. My anger turned to rage. She had to pay. In the insectarium, she had the habit trail tube connected to the wasp enclosure. But the end for the spider cage was unattached. My hand moved by itself, it seemed, and flicked the cage open on the wasp cage. I think there was a thought in my head that i just let it sting her once, or just get one wasp out, and then she would pass out. I'd trap the wasp, put it back, and leave. Anyway, that was the split-second plan in my head. So few things go the way we plan. The wasps were much faster than I expected. They shot out of the habit trail tubing, just like Mama Blue, and were on Tommy in a second. The first sting started her screaming. And it just built in intensity as they hit her again and again. I thought she'd pass out quickly, but she was tough. She dropped to her knees and started crawling for the door. God help me, I locked it on her. Propped my feet against the bottom and braced it with my hands. I just wanted her to quit screaming, but she didn't. It went on for minutes, gradually weakening, but not before I hated myself through and through. I knew that if I left her in there, she would probably end up dead from the stings. Who knows how much venom it can pump into her. Anything can be fatal in sufficient amounts. Just because one or two stings didn't have a lethal effect on humans didn't mean that Tommy getting stung repeatedly wouldn't kill her. I was mad at her, but I didn't want to kill her. Mostly because I didn't want to go to jail, not because I cared about her. When I couldn't hear Tommy crying or moaning anymore, I peeked through the glass in the insectarium door. She hadn't gotten close to the door, but was slumped about three feet away with several pepsis sitting on her. Others were sitting on or swarming around the tarantulas with... No way to tell how many times she'd been stung or the potency of the immature adult pepsis. I could only assume that she'd be out for at least 20 minutes. Would they sense her stirring and sting again? There was no way to tell. Weeks earlier, I installed a failsafe to flood the insectarium with Hammerstein gas. A sedative I developed when I started working on the original pepsis. Back then, I'd only been concerned with the wasps getting loose inside the insectarium, so the switch was inside it. All I had to do was watch the wasps to make sure they weren't close to the door, get through the door quickly, and trigger it. 
It was fast acting, and I doubted they'd be able to get me before I knocked them out. At least, I hoped. I put on a mask, located what I hoped were all the wasps, and readied myself for the run to the door, hyperventilating and psyching myself up. You can do this, Nora. You gotta do this, Nora. Just gas the room and get her out. None of the cameras are on, and you shut off the alarm when you came in. You're safe. You got this, girl. You got this. I popped the safety to the door, sprinted through it, and went straight for the switch. My hand flew to the switch, but jerked back at the last second because sitting on it was Mama Blue. I stared at her for a split second. Every muscle in my body tensed and glanced away to find something, anything to crush her. When I looked back, she was gone. I hadn't moved from the spot, but she was nowhere to be found. Vanished. Oh, I couldn't even breathe! Every breeze, every rustle of clothing, every sliding bead of sweat I felt became Mama Blue, frozen. I could see her clearly in my mind's eye, clinging somewhere on the lab coat, her legs dug into the cotton, hanging where I couldn't feel her, couldn't see her, unblinking eyes, hungrily watching exposed skin, waiting. She didn't leave me hanging. I only really felt the first sting because my side and then brain exploded. All those things I had said about the pain index, all those things I'd thought about, whether it was moral to use this on terrorists, none of it mattered. I'd never felt anything so painful. I was dimly aware that I'd lost bowel control and was falling. I've heard people talk about pain that exceeds their ability to process it and going outside themselves, looking on from a distance. Lies. Every second was throbbing, screaming, electric pain, lightning surges of agony, incapacitating my mind, a whole body revolt against conscious thought, suffocating my brain, leaving me trembling, pool of pain on the floor. I don't know how long I laid there, but when I could finally form coherent thoughts, I understood that I was on my side facing Tommy. She was a few feet away, and the wasps had been busy. They devoured her ear and eye and parts of her face. She wasn't moving except for shallow breaths and the occasional moan. I laid on the floor trying not to move so Mama Blue wouldn't know I was awake. But no matter how I tried to control myself, no matter how quietly I lay there, Mama Blue came back and stung me again, casting me headlong once again into hell. After a few thousand years, I noticed Tommy was moving, or at least she seemed to be moving. She was trembling, twitching, I thought at first she was going into shock from the stings, but then her skin began to move, to ripple. I thought she might be spasming, but then I realized what it was. Unable to move, I watched through wide, staring eyes as her skin split. As exit wounds across her body popped open and larvae began wriggling free. The shiny faces of Mama Blue's children, slick with blood and mucus, voraciously chewing the skin, luxuriating in the tender delicacy that was a human, no longer confined to miniature by the paltry morsel of a tarantula. They gorged on a buffet of humanity, and as I watched her skin boil and pop forth, a squirming host of Pepsis, all of whom I had created so that I could keep my job. I knew I was next. And I laid there and screamed. Very special thanks.
thanks to the voice actors tonight, Kristen Green, the main voice in Eternia, Cody McNulty as the old wizard, and Samantha Stark, the main voice in Mama Blue. For more information, visit crafttheshow.com. Until next time, be creative.